Ezra chapter 3, continuing our study through the book of Ezra. And I want to teach everyone a very important lesson um, that uh, there's uh, some great personal application we can make here, but there's also some great doctrinal significance from what we can learn from this chapter. Now, what we're going to see in this chapter, what I'm going to show you, is something that it's hard to know for sure exactly what it was talking about just from this chapter. But if we go somewhere else in the Bible, we can definitely get a fuller understanding of what's going on, and there's a great lesson to be learned. But in chapter 1, just a little bit of review, we see Cyrus, we see his decree that would allow the Jews to return home and to rebuild their temple after that Judah has been in captivity for 70 years. In chapter 2, we see the great exodus and the return to Judah, where it names all these people, and there were thousands of them that left. And it was also showing, too, how God had blessed the nation of Israel, and they grew and prospered even in that 70 years of captivity. And so now we're in chapter 3, and it says, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So seven months has now passed from the time of their return to the land. And this is the first time Judah, as a, as a nation, they are about to get back to business, uh, the business of following the Lord and specifically doing the things of the temple, of the law, the ceremonial things, uh, the feast. That was something they were supposed to be doing. And so they are, they're coming back to Jerusalem specifically to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was a really big deal. That was a, a fall feast. Uh, some of your Hebrew roots clowns are going to be doing that type of thing around this type of year. They're uh, all into that stuff. And uh, that's a subject I don't want to get sidetracked on, but that aggravates me greatly when Christians observe the Jewish feast. I think that's offensive. But anyway, so, so this was a major event, though, for them. And one that the nations around them that were in their land, because remember, they, they always, they never fully drove the nations out of their land. So what do you think happened during the 70 years when they were out of the land? While they, many of them were under tribute a lot, these other nations would have thrived, they'd have grown, they'd have probably expanded into their territory. And so Israel now coming back after all these years, many of these people, uh, you know, they never had seen the temple in their lifetime. They had never seen the Jews occupying that land. And so even though they would have been aware of their history there, they would have had it in their head. This is our land now. And so you can kind of see why um, they would have received some opposition, which we will see uh, starting in the next chapter. Uh, so the status quo, you could say, has greatly changed in Jerusalem and after the 70 years. And this wasn't going to happen without a fight. And the word, that term status quo is one that's often used a lot to describe the situation in Jerusalem now. It is very complicated and it's been the way it is for quite a while now and it will not change without a major war, a major international incident. And so it's kind of what's going on here during this time. So in verse 2, it says, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. 
And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So, you can imagine the excitement as they're back to keeping these feasts and while they're about to offer an offering on the altar. This was something they did regularly before, but it had been over 70 years since they had done this kind of thing. The closest thing we could have that we've ever experienced, and we've not really experienced it here very much, but you might remember in 2020 when the government told churches they could go back to church, you know, and how other churches, remember how excited they got? I don't know if, I remember one church in particular where uh, because they, uh, I, I forgot, I forgot which specific event it was, but I mean, this guy, this preacher just got up in his church and he was so excited and they like sang another verse. I forgot which hymn it was. It was supposed to be glorifying God but he wanted to sing it in honor of the governor <laughs> that basically, uh, you know, allowed churches to go back to meeting. And it's just like, and, and it and it had only been a matter of weeks, maybe a couple months. And so imagine if for 70 years, people weren't able to do these things. And then all of a sudden we were able to come back to doing it. Now, personally, I think in America, if we went 70 years without having church, and then all of a sudden they're like, you guys can go back to church. I don't think there would be many going back to church. I, I don't, you know, that's, and the truth is too, uh, there's a lot of churches that still haven't recovered from the lockdown because, and, uh, people, people just never came back. It's just kind of a sad thing, but Israel, Judah did here. Judah did come back. They had, uh, there were many who were faithful that were obedient and they, as soon as they were able to, they got right back to doing these things. So this is a big deal. This is, this is a big deal for Judah uh, also, but this is a big deal in the Jerusalem area with the people that are surrounding them that see what's going on. This is going to freak them out a little bit because they don't want Judah coming back into power. It's going to be seen as a threat to them. So we're, we're seeing these priests finally get back to doing what they were supposed to be doing. And these things that they did were on behalf of all the people. All these feasts, all these sacrifices, they were. They were very important during this time. And while Israel was supposed to be living life on the land God's given them, they were also supposed to be worshiping and serving God as well. They were not supposed to forget God. That was, And so when God gave them that land, God promised that He would bless them in that land if they would obey His law and if they would take the time to remember Him. And they did. They had many feasts they had they had sabbaths they even were supposed to have sabbath years and you say well that's not economically smart well it's very smart because it gets god's blessing on your nation what would you rather have god blessing you for six years knowing you're going to need that blessing to prepare for the seventh year where you let the land rest or do you want to be able to just work the whole seven years with god working against you it, they would have been so much better off if they would have been obedient to God and just kept him first. That's what God wanted. God wanted them to have a good land. He wanted them to have houses and he wanted them to have farms and families and all these things. But God's like, don't you forget me. 
And so God gave them a system. God gave them a process so they would remember him. God gave them feasts. God gave them offerings. All these things were to help the people to remember God. And so while there's much that they are beginning to do, they're just beginning, they still need a temple. The temple was very important for them. They needed that temple. And so in verse 7, it says, They gave money also unto the masons, and to the carpenters, and the meat and drink and oil, unto them of Zidon, and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and remember him, he was the man that was in the line of Christ. He would be, uh, you have Jeconiah, who was the king when they were taken captive. Then you have Shealtiel or Salathiel. And then you have Zerubbabel. And these guys are in the line of Christ. And then you have Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the remnant of the brethren of the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So, notice we're two years in now. Because again, all these things, them getting everything prepared, it's all going to take time. So we're two years into the time where they've been allowed to come back in the land. So verse 9 says, Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and the brethren, their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So this is a very exciting time. And, uh, and today, something that we've seen, I don't know if you've ever been a part of this. I have a couple different times. Uh, in our old church, we had uh, what we call groundbreaking ceremonies. Anybody ever seen a groundbreaking ceremony whenever they're going to build a place? You know, they'll have people go out there with a shovel. And it's just, it's kind of symbolic, right? And, but it just shows you're getting something started. The work's about to begin. And so this is what's going on now. They're laying the foundation of the temple. So this is just kind of showing, hey, we're getting started. We're going to do this big project. We're going to build this temple to the Lord. So this is an exciting moment. It's the beginning, you know, and the most exciting times of building anything. And I've been in building projects is when you get started, everybody's fired up and excited. And when you finish the time in between typically stinks. <laughs> and we're going to see too, in this story, some of the time in between was very difficult. There was a lot of battles and I've ne- and you know, almost every building project I've ever been a part of uh, usually results in a church split too. And that's another common thing because they are, they're, they're difficult and they're stressful times and people, they, they go crazy during those times. And, um, we'll, uh, if we ever do a building project, we'll do some preparatory sermons <laughs> for that and talk about why that happens. But anyway, so verse 12 says, but many of the priests and Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first half house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people 
For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. So the question is, and it's hard to tell just from this passage, but I'm going to tell you why it is, and I think I can prove this from the Bible. Why did the old men weep when they laid the foundation of this temple? So we see there's some ancient men there. There's some old men that remembered the former house that was you know, known as Solomon's Temple. Right here is a picture, and we've done stuff on this before, of a model. This is a picture of a model they have over in Jerusalem of what they believe uh, the temple looked like or first century Jerusalem. This would be considered Herod's temple, uh, but it was also probably very similar to Solomon's temple. And so you had Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians that these old men remember. And then here what we're seeing is the beginning of the building of, of the second temple, which is technically what this is, but what the Bible shows what history proves is that the second temple it was it was very very inferior to solomon's temple and what happened according to history we don't see this in the bible but not long before the time of christ during the time of herod the great he went and greatly refurbished the temple and uh they uh he like added to it and basically brought it to the former glory of the time in solomon's day but in this time period, when that temple was rebuilt, when it started being when it started being built, it was not like it was in Solomon's day. It was a pretty, uh, it was probably a pretty sorry looking temple in comparison. It probably did not look like that. This is what it would have looked like in Herod's day after Herod, who was known for being a great builder, uh, would have uh, made it look like. So kind of keep that in mind. But I believe they were weeping because when they saw this foundation that was laid, it was obvious and apparent that this new temple was not going to be like the former one. And I've talked about this before, but Israel, we could see evidence of this in the Bible. There are some Psalms that talk a lot about just the beauty of Jerusalem before the Babylonians came through, the buildings that they had. They were, they were very proud of their buildings and all they'd accomplished. And when the prophets were originally prophesying the destruction, many people did not believe it. There was like, you know, look at our buildings, look at our walls. You know, there's no way anybody's going to be able to touch us. But, you know, it didn't matter. The hand of God was against Jerusalem because of their disobedience. And so, you know what happened? They did. They did lose those battles. Their buildings were destroyed. Their towers were ripped down. Their temple was destroyed. They didn't believe that could happen. But it did happen. So this new generation that comes along, they've heard about the former temple. So when they see a temple, the foundation being laid, they're excited. They're like, all right, we're going back to the glory days. But these old men who had seen the former temple, they're like, this isn't going to be like it was before. They saw something coming that was much more inferior. And so some people think, though, well, now they were just weeping because they were overcome with joy that a temple was coming back. But no, I believe they were crying because they were sad that the new temple would be so inferior to the old temple. But I want to explain something to you too. And I'm going to show you some proof from the scripture here in a minute. But here's a lesson. Here's a life application I want us to make because this is very important for us to understand. Okay? But big and beautiful buildings are not sinful. 
Okay? It's not sinful to have a big, beautiful building. Don't just assume if you go to church somewhere because they have a big, beautiful building that they're compromises, they're idolatrous, they, they don't do soul winning in their church. You know, shut up. All right? that, that, that's, you don't need to be that way. Okay? It's okay to build big, beautiful buildings. But at the same time, big, beautiful buildings can become a distraction from what's important. I think that's one of the reasons there's a lot of church splits too because people kind of get sidetracked and they lose their focus. Soul winning goes on the back burner and everybody's just focused on getting that building up. And so I think that's a lot of it. But I believe that God was pleased with Solomon who used his wealth, who used his skills, and he built the best house that he could for God. And it just happened to be very good. I believe God was pleased with that. But you know what? I believe God is going to be pleased with Zerubbabel. And the temple that they're going to build, even though it's a much lesser temple, even though it is a much inferior building, I believe, and I'm going to show you that God was pleased with this temple. And I believe, I believe too, even since the time of Christ, it hasn't been a sin for churches to build big, beautiful buildings as places of worship. But sadly, these buildings can turn into idols where they become more about the people who built them rather than the God who they were built for. And I'm telling you, that happens. I've seen this with my own eyes. And I, I believe, uh, and, you know, to this day, 2,000 years after Christ, Christians will travel to other parts of the world, especially in America. We don't have a lot of super cool buildings in America, especially religious ones. You know, there are some, but not real ancient ones. You know, you don't find anything more than a couple hundred years old here in America. But people will travel to other parts of the world to, you know, experience the wonder of some of these architectural masterpieces. We're amazed at their size. We're amazed at their beauty. We're intrigued by the history, the legends surrounding them. But the sad thing is, many Christians, when they see these things, this, this happens a lot. When Christians go visit these places, I'm going to show you some pictures of this. Some, they're often so impressed with these places, their history, they want to connect themselves to them. And this is where we see a lot of good Christians sometimes end up getting caught up into, you know, reform theology and wanting to connect themselves with some of these historical churches because of their, you know, they, these people successfully made a great name for themselves in these buildings. And we see that in the Bible too. They would build buildings as a way to make a name for themselves so they would be remembered. Absalom, he didn't have any children, so he built a place called Absalom's Place. So he would be remembered. That's why they would do these things, and often they would become about the men rather than the God. And a lot of these people, they want to feel like they're a part of something big that these things represent. And so, obviously, we don't have a temple today that people can go back to. If we had, if the temple was still standing that was there in the time of Christ, even Christians would go worship that place so bad. And Jews, I mean, Jews are already making out with a wall that surrounded the old temple just because they believe the Shekinah glory went down into it. And it's just like, you know, that's absolutely nuts. And Christians do the same thing. Christians go there and do the same thing. But I want to show you some pictures of some, some churches because these places, they will kind of bewitch you. Anybody know what this place is? Yeah, this is St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome, at, in Vatican City. And, I mean, this place is unbelievable looking. I, I've never been here before, 
Uh, and these pictures, unfortunately, they might not be in, or, in the order that I wanted them. But people from all over the world, they will go, Christians, non-Christians. And when you look at a place like this, that's got a ton of history, you're, you can't help but be amazed and impressed. And people do. They look at the Catholic Church and they wonder after her. They admire her. I mean, look at the wealth. Look at these things. Look at the history. And I'm telling you, we're so impressed by this stuff. It can be very moving to see this. I mean, I mean, look at that place right there. That, how's that not going to knock your socks off? Seeing something like that, experiencing that, and seeing all the religious things everywhere. I mean, you know, who does, I, I mentioned before how my dad used to have this Catholic Bible, and I remember seeing some pictures inside there of some of the stuff in the back. I thought it was heaven. As a little kid, I thought those were pictures of heaven. Uh, that I, I was convinced of that as a little kid. But, I mean, this is impressive looking stuff that they've built. This is inside uh, St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, this is just, the architecture is just absolutely beautiful. I mean, these, spiritually, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. But can you see why people look at that and just admire that and think, man, I'd like to be connected to this. I want to feel like I'm a part of what this is here. Uh, so I've never been to St. Peter's Basilica before, but I have been to this place here. And uh, anybody recognize this place? I, I haven't shown you this picture before, but anybody recognize it? You'll recognize this place after you watch a documentary, Temple. But this is, this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You can barely see it right there, but right there is the immovable ladder. Remember the immovable ladder? But that's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, I believe what you're seeing here was built in the 1800s, but there are portions, there are parts inside that go back much, much farther. There's been a church in this spot since the 4th century. People, have, this is where the Catholics believe, that I, I do not believe Jesus died on the cross here, I do not believe He was buried here, but Christians have, or I should say Catholics have, for you know, 1,700 years. And Christians have visited this place. The amount of history that's here, I mean, it, it boggles the mind, especially for an American where we're not used to a lot of real ancient history. And people from all over the world, every single day, they go through this place. It's got a ton of tradition. There's that, there's that immovable ladder again. There's that entrance that's there. And I'm telling you, it, it is pretty incredible when you go inside here. And, and they didn't, I couldn't find any good pictures of the inside. But folks, inside this building is just incredible. I mean, I, you know, when I walked, I, I spent a lot of time in there. I went in there one night. It was, it was, you know, later in the evening and hardly anybody was around there. I just kind of wandered around the place and just the history, the things that all that has been going on there, even though I don't believe there's a spot, there's a chaplain. I didn't realize when I was there where they believe that, uh, this, you know, Adam's uh, body was buried and that the blood of Christ flowed down there and went to Adam's, you know, uh, Adam's grave. I don't believe that at all. But you know what? There, there's something about the fact that Christians have been going there doing this stuff for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's just, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing uh, thing to behold. And when you do, when you see these things, you just can't help but be impressed by it. This here, this is the church of the nativity. This is where the, uh, they built the church here. Now, it's been tore down and rebuilt over the centuries too. But since the 4th century, you know, and I don't believe this was where Jesus was actually born because Constantine's mom 
she figured it out through visions and dreams and stuff, and that's a bunch of baloney. But Christians have been traveling here like it's a place where Jesus was born for 1,700 years. Um, and just tons of history. Uh, unfortunately, I, oh, okay, I did the wrong format for a lot of the pictures, and so uh, not all of them are working. Oh, well, but anyway, but that Church of the Nativity, I wish I had the pictures of the inside of it. I mean, it's, it's impressive. We don't have stuff like that in America. But when you look at these things, when you look at these amazing, amazing buildings, you can't help but just kind of be impressed to admire and think. And, you know, and as Christians who have a faith that goes back, not even just to Christ, that goes back even before Christ, you know, we, we all want to be connected to that ancient stuff. And we want to find ourselves. And so often we're drawn to these buildings. We're drawn to these churches. Europe's got these massive churches all over the place that people will go to. People just were horrified when Notre Dame, the, the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, burnt down recently because, I mean, that church, I forgot how many hundreds of years it's been there. But, I mean, just, uh, it's, it's pretty, and the architecture's amazing. So, again, it, I don't believe it's wrong for people who love the Lord and want to build something great for Him as a place of worship, I don't believe that's a sin. But what does God think about that? God cares mainly about the heart. That, that's what God cares about. And uh, and but what he, He's not, God's not impressed with man's architectural abilities, is He? And I want to well, let's go to some scriptures because it's important that we understand this because. Again, the temple, the temple ended up becoming a huge snare for the Jews after the death of Christ. It actually became a huge snare. And I believe that would happen too. If we could build a big, massive church or something like that, it eventually could become a snare. It could become about the legends of the original Liberty Baptist Church. You know, assuming our church goes on for hundreds of years and the original founding pastor, Tommy McMurtry, that we make greater than he actually was. And that's what everybody does with these preachers too. They make they make them legendary, greater than they actually were. Yes. Yeah, you know, I've never I've never heard uh, like any historical account of what their response to that was. Obviously, they ignored it. And so the thing back up and went right back to doing things. But I mean, that was a huge sign that God was done with the temple. I mean, they, they should have known. And it is, it's a, it's an amazing thing that they ignore that and continued on. But again, when you look at Jews today who are so steeped in tradition that no matter how many facts you show them to show that the, that, uh, where the Wailing Wall is and the, the Temple Mount, the, that that was not where the Temple was, they don't care. Facts don't matter to Jews. Okay? What matters is tradition. Tradition matters to them. And that's how it was in Jesus' day. It was all about tradition. And in Hebrews 13.10, the writer of Hebrews says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. You know, and that sounds very anti-Semitic, that we have an altar that they, talking about the Jews, they have no right to. Why? Because they serve the tabernacle. It says, uh, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. 
Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto Him without the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto His name. We have no calling to pay attention to Jerusalem. We have been called to go away from the things of Jerusalem. We have Baptist preachers today calling Christians to get back to focusing on Jerusalem. Because we're supposed to, when it comes to the gospel, we're supposed to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's still supposed to be the priority today. We should be focused on Jerusalem first. Our first missionary should be a missionary to Jerusalem. I, I, I'm not going to get into that. Man, do I disagree with that so much. That, I, I think that is so wrong. But, what, uh, but understand, we don't, it's, it's not about a city. It's not about a building. The writer of Hebrews told the Jews to follow Jesus without the camp, bearing His reproach. Let's never get this attitude that it's wrong to have a nice building or places of worship, but understand, God doesn't really care about what we can build. John 4.21, Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so while that building, while the temple, it provided a purpose for a certain time, understand it was never about the building. Never. Go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. This particular passage we're about to read was written during the time of Ezra. And so what we're going to end up seeing in the next chapter, when they start doing all this work, opposition comes and the work ends up ceasing for a while and so god ends up sending the prophets haggai and zechariah we see them mentioned we're going to see them mentioned eventually and but right here we have the words that they said to the people and they're calling on the people to get back to work the government said no god said yes get back to work and so in haggai 2 says in the seventh month in the one and twentieth day of the month came the word of the lord by the prophet haggai saying Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as nothing? So, I've heard some people try to say that, no, the second temple wasn't inferior, that Zerubbabel's temple was actually a fulfilling of the Zechariah or not the Zechariah, the Ezekiel temple. And that doesn't make any sense because that Ezekiel temple was definitely, if you look at the description, a lot more glorious than the Zerubbabel temple. But we've already talked about that. I'm not going to get into all that. But no, this new temple was inferior to the old temple. And so the prophet Haggai, he brings it up. Hey, which of you that are, are still here that saw the former temple? You see this in comparison as nothing. I think they were probably discouraged. And it would appear that some had lost their zeal, not just because of the opposition, but some understood this temple isn't going to be as great as the last one. I was hoping to see something like we saw before, but it's just not there. 
Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. And God's telling them not to worry about the fact that this building isn't as impressive, because what mattered was the work that God was going to do in the future. Not the work that they were doing. They were doing a good work. But what really mattered was what God was going to do in the future. Look at verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Anybody remember a song we sing that that verse is from? Come desire of nations come. Christmas song about the coming of Christ. And it says, um, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So God told them the glory of the latter house. This inferior temple is going to be greater than the former one. Now, what was the fulfillment of that? Was it after Herod did this to it? Did Herod, was he the one that glorified the temple? Or was this about who was going to come into that temple someday? It was, this was about Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is better than the temple. And it says in Hebrews 12, 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then, talking about when they came out of, Mount Sinai, uh, out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more signifieth, the removing of those things that are shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So notice this shaking of heaven and earth that's referred to is still something that was to come. And he said that that what's going to be done, it's going to be a removing of those things that can be shaken. And I believe you could say a fulfillment of that was when the temple was completely destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. What happened when God got rid of that temple? God completely removed those things of the old covenant. In fact, he removed it so good, he got rid of it so good that nobody even to this day knows for sure where those things once stood. You've got the main place everybody focuses on. That's just dead wrong. But then even the place where we believe it was, we're not sure the exact spot, exactly where it was. You know why? Because God shook it. God got rid of it. You know why? Because God in the work that Jesus Christ did, it was it was better than any work that could be done in that temple. We see God renting the veil of that temple. And God replaced it with the temple of Jesus' body, a temple that they destroyed. And three days later, Jesus raised up. 
again. And so the inferior temple, you know, while Zerubbabel's temple was inferior to Solomon's temple, the reality is all these temples, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, were far inferior to the temple of Jesus' body. That temple was greater than all other temples. And so what we see God basically telling them here in Haggai, hey, don't be discouraged. The building that you're building is not that great. You know why? Because God doesn't care that much about... You think the God who created the universe is impressed with what we build with materials that he's made? I don't think we impress God with our materials. I don't think God goes in these buildings like, wow, look at your architecture. God cares about what we do from the heart. And I believe Israel did the best they could with Solomon's day, and it was really good. I believe they did the best they could in Zerubbabel's day, which wasn't that great. But God didn't care because God was going to send the desire of nations. He was going to send Jesus Christ, who was going to do something far more greater and far more glorious. And what made the temple great was the fact Jesus went in it, not the fact that they built something impressive. So understand, too, when it comes to churches, if a church wants to build a nice building, that's wonderful. That's great. But did you know a church meeting in a cave, a church meeting in a mud hut in Africa that has good doctrine, that has people who love the Lord and that are worshiping from the heart, that are winning souls, did you know God is pleased with them too? In fact, God's probably more pleased with those people. God's, God's you know, in, in Kansas... Uh, I did a live stream with Pastor Randall a while back about that. There's this real Catholic town, St. Mary's. There, They've built a very impressive building there. I mean, a very impressive building. And But you know what? It's also Catholic. It's full of idols. And while it's a architectural you know, masterpiece, you know what? I believe God is more impressed with what we do in our inferior building. I believe God is more impressed and God is more pleased with people who are meeting in houses in garages, in parks, who are preaching the truth and winning souls than he is the people in St. Mary's, Kansas. So, anyway, uh, just a great lesson that we can learn there from Ezra chapter 3, where we see uh, the beginning of this inferior temple. Next week we'll go uh, more into that and see what happens as they start building it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this chapter and the lesson we can learn from it. I pray, Lord, we'll never get sidetracked with uh, the buildings and the things that we can do, but we'll stay focused on you and the work of spreading the gospel and making a difference in the hearts and lives of people. Lord, you didn't die for buildings, you died for people. And so help us to always keep those things first. In your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.